Part 2, Chapter 1, An Antecedent and a Horror. Joseph Kerwin, as revealed by the rambling legends embodied in what Ward heard and unearthed, was a very astonishing, enigmatic, and obscurely horrible individual. He had fled from Salem to Providence, that universal haven of the odd, the free, and the dissenting, at the beginning of the great witchcraft panic. Being in fear of accusation because of his solitary ways and queer chemical or alchemical experiments, he was a colorless-looking man of about 30 and soon was found qualified to become a freeman of Providence, thereafter buying a home lot just north of Gregory Dexter at about the foot of Only Street. His house was built on Stampers Hill, west of Town Street, in what later became Only Court, and in 1761 he replaced this with a larger one on the same site which is still standing. Now the first odd thing about Joseph Kerwin was that he did not seem to grow much older than he had been on his arrival. He engaged in shipping enterprises, purchased wharfage near Mile End Cove, helped rebuild the Great Bridge in 1713, and in 1723 was one of the founders of the Congregational Church on the hill. But always did he retain that nondescript aspect of a man not greatly over 30 or 35. As decades mount up, the singular quality began to excite wide notice, but Curran always explained it by saying that he came from hardy forefathers and practiced a simplicity of life which did not wear him out. How such simplicity could be reconciled with the inexplicable comings and goings of the secretive merchant and with the queer gleamings of his windows at all hours of the night was not clear to the town folk, and they were prone to assign other reasons for his continued youth and longevity. It was held for the most part that Kerwin's incessant mixing and boilings of chemicals had much to do with his condition. Gossips spoke of the strange substances brought from London and the Indies on his ships or purchased in Newport. Boston or New York, and when old Dr. Jabez Bowen came from Rehoboth and opened his apothecary shop across the Great Bridge at the sign of Unicorn and Mortar, there was ceaseless talk of the drugs, acid, and metals that the tacturn recluse incessantly bought or ordered from him. Acting on the assumption that Kerwin possessed a wondrous and secret medical skill, many sufferers of various sorts applied him for aid, but though he appeared to encourage their belief in a non-committal way, and always gave them odd-colored potions in response to their request, it was observed that his ministrations to others seldom proved of benefit. At length, when over fifty years had passed since the stranger's advent, and without producing more than five years of apparent change in his face and physique, the people began to whisper more darkly, and meet more than halfway that desire for isolation which he had always shewn. Private letters and diaries of this period reveals, too, a multitude of other reasons why Joseph Kerwin 
was marveled at, feared, and finally shunned like the plague. His passion for graveyards in which he was glimpsed at all hours and under all conditions was notorious, though no one had witnessed any deed on his part, which could actually be termed ghoulish. On the Patusset Road, he had a farm, at which he generally lived during the summer, and to which he would frequently be seen riding at various odd times of day or night. Here, his only visible servants, farmers, and caretakers were a sullen pair of aged Nagasset Indian, the husband dumb and curiously scarred, and the wife of a very repulsive cast of consonants. In the lean-to of this house, there was a laboratory where most of the experiments were conducted. Curious porters and teamers who delivered bottles, bags, and boxes to the small rear door would exchange accounts of the fantastic flasks, crucibles, and alimics. In furnaces, they saw in the low-shelved rooms and prophesied in whispers that the closed-mouthed chemist, by which they mean alchemist, could not be long in finding the philosopher's stone. The nearest neighbors to this farm, the Finners, a quarter mile away, had still queerer things to tell of certain sounds, which they insisted came from the Kerwin place in the night. There were cries, they said, and sustained howlings, and they did not like the large numbers of livestock which thronged the pastures, for no such amount was needed to keep a lone man and very few servants in milk, meat, and wool. The identity of the stock seemed to change from week to week as new droves were purchased from the Kingstown farmers. Then, too, there's something very obnoxious about a certain great stone outbuilding with only high, narrowed slits for windows. Great Bridge idlers, likewise, had much to say of Kerwin's townhouse and only court. Not so much the fine new one built in 1761, when the man must have been nearly a century old, but the first new Gramerald roof one, with the windowless attic and shingled sides, whose timbers he took the particular precaution of burning after its demolition. Here was less of a mystery. It is true, but the hours at which the lights were seen, the secretiveness of the two swarthy foreigners who comprised the only manservants, the hideous and distinct mumblings of the incredibly aged, and the large amount of food seen to enter the door within which only four persons lived, and the quality of certain voices often heard in muffled conversations at highly unsuitable times all combine with what we known of the Potusset farm to give the place a bad name. In choicer circles in choicer circles too, the Kerwin home was by no means undiscussed. For as the newcomer had gradually worked in the church and trading life of the town, he naturally made acquaintances of the better sort, whose company and conversation he was well fit by education to enjoy. His birth was known to be good since the Kerwins of Salem needed no introduction in New England. It developed that Joseph Kerwin had traveled much in his early life, living for a time in England and making at least two voyages to the Orient. In his speech, when he deigned to use it, was that of a learned and cultivated Englishman. 
But for some reason or the other, Kerwin did not care for society. Whilst he never actually rebuffed a visitor, he always reared such a wall of reserve that few could think of anything to say to him, which would not sound insane. There seemed to lurk in his bearing some cryptical, sardonic arrogance, as if he had come to find all humans dull through having moved among the stranger, more potent entities. When Dr. Checkley, the famous wit from, came from Boston in 1738 to be rector of King's Church, he did not neglect calling on whom he had heard so much, but left in a very short while because of some sinister undercurrent he detected in his host's discourse. Charles Ward told his father when they discussed Kerwin one winter evening, that he would give much to learn what the mysterious old man had said to the sprightly cleric, but all the diarists agree concerning Dr. Checkley's reluctance to repeat anything he had heard. The good man had been horribly shocked and could not recall Joseph Kerwin without a visible loss of the gay urbanity which he was famed. The more definite, however, was the reason why another man of taste and breeding avoided the haughty Herbert. In 1746, Dr. Murrett, an elderly English gentleman of literary and scientific leanings, came from Newport to town which was so rapidly overtaking it and standing, and built a fine country seat on the neck and is now the heart of the best residence section. He lived in considerable style and comfort, keeping the first coach and the livery servants in town and taking great pride in his telescope, his microscope, and well-chosen library of English and Latin books. Hearing of Kerwin as the owner of the best library in Providence, Mr. Murrett early paid him a call, and was more cordially received than most other callers at the house had been. His admiration for his host's ample shelves, which besides Greek, Latin, and English classics were equipped with remarkable battery of philosophical, mathematical, and scientific works. Kerwin suggested a visit to the farmhouse and laboratory, whither he never inv- invited anyone before, and the two drove out at once in Mr. Murrett's coach. Mr. Murrett always confessed to seeing nothing really horrible at the farmhouse, but maintained that the titles of the books were in the special library of thermological alchemical and theological subjects which Kerwin kept in the front room were alone sufficient to inspire him with lasting loathing. Perhaps, however, the facial expression of the owner exhibiting them contributed much of the prejudice. The bizarre collection, besides a host of standard works, which Mr. Murrett was not too alarmed to envy, embraced nearly all the cabalist, demonologist, and magicians known to man. It was a treasure trove of lore in the doubtful realms of alchemy and astrology. Medieval Jews and Arabs were represented in profusion, and Mr. Murrett turned pale upon taking down a fine volume conspicuously labeled as the Kalnun-e-Islam. He found it was in truth the forbidden necronomicon of the mad Arab Alzared of which he had heard such monstrous things whispered in years previously, after exposure of nameless rites 
at the strange little fishing village of Kingsport in the province of Massachusetts Bay. But oddly enough, the worthy gentleman owned himself most impalpably disquieted by a mere minor detail. On the huge mahogany table, there lay face down a badly worn copy of Borealis, bearing many cryptical imaginalia and interlineations in Kerwin's hand. The book was open at about its middle, and one paragraph displayed such thick and tremulous pinstrokes beneath the lines of the mystic black letter that the visitor could not resist scanning through. Whether it was the nature of the passage, underscored, or the feverish heaviness of the stroke, which formed the underscoring, he could not tell, but something in that combination affected him. He recalled it to the end of his days, writing it down from memory in his diary, and once trying to recite it to his close friend, Dr. Checkley, until he saw how it greatly disturbed the urbane rector. It read, The essential salts of the animals may be repaired and preserved, that an ingenious man may have the whole Ark of Noah in his own study, and raise the fine shape of an animal out of its ashes at his pleasure. And by the like method, from the essential salts of human dust, a philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor from the dust whither to his body had been incinerated. It was near the docks, along the southerly part of Town Street. However, the worst things were muttered about Joseph Kerwin. Sailors are superstitious folk, and they season salts that man the infinite rum, slave, and molasses loops, the rackish privateers, and the great brigs of the Brown, Crawfords, and Tillingas, all made strange furtive signs of protection when they saw the slim, deceptively young-looking figure, with its yellow hair and, and slight stoop, entering the Kerwin warehouse in De Bloom Street, or talking with captains and supercargoes on the long quay, where the Kerwin ship rode restlessly. Kerwin's own clerk and captains hated and feared him, and all his sailors were from Martinique, St. Estius, Havana, or Royal Port. It was, in a way, the frequency in which these sailors were replaced, which inspired the acutest and most tangible part of the fear which the old man had held. A crew would be turned loose in town on shore leave, some of its members perhaps charged with an errand or that, and Wren resembled it would almost sure to lack one or more men. That many of the errands had concerned the farm on Potesset Road, and that few of the sailors had ever been seen to report from that place was not forgotten, so in that time it became increasingly difficult for Kerwin to keep his oddly assorted hands. Almost invariably, several would desert soon after hearing the gossip of the Providence Wharfs, and their replacements in the West Indies became an increasingly great problem to the Kerwin, to the merchant. In 1760, Joseph Kerwin was virtually an outcast, suspected of vague horrors and demonical alliances, which seemed all the more menacing because they could not be named, understood, or even proved to exist. 
The last straw may have come from the affair of the missing soldiers in 1758. For in March and April of that year, two royal regiments were on their way to New France, were quartered in Providence, and depleted by an inexplicable process far beyond the average rate of desertion. Rumors dwell on the frequency in which Kerwin was wont to seen talking with the red-coated strangers, and as several of them began to be missed, people thought of the odd conditions among his own seamen. What would happen if the regiment had not been ordered on, no one could tell. Meanwhile, the merchant's worldly affairs were prospering. He had a virtual monopoly on the town's trade in saltpeter, black pepper, and cinnamon, and easily led any of the other one shipping establishment, save for the browns, of his importations of brassware, indigo, cotton, woolens, woolens, salt, rigging, iron, paper, and English goods of every kind. Such shopkeepers as James Green at the sign of Elephant in Chesapeake, the Russells at the sign of Green Eagle across the bridge, or Clark and Nightingale at the frying pan and fish near the old coffee house, depended almost wholly upon him for their stock and his arrangement with local distillers, the Narragansett dairymen and horse breeders, and the Newport candle makers made him one of the prime exporters of the colony. Ostracized though he was, he did not lack for civic spirit of a sort. When the colony house burnt down, he subscribed handsomely to the lotteries in which the new brick one, still standing at the head of its parade in Main Street, was built in 1761. That same year, too, he helped rebuild the Great Bridge after the October Gale. He replaced many of the books in the public library consumed in the Colony House fire and bought heavily in the lottery that gave muddy market parade and deep-rutted town street their pavement of great round stones with a brick footway or causey in the middle. About this time, he had built the plain but excellent new house whose doorway is still such a triumph of carving. When Whitefield adherents broke off from the Dr. Cotton Church in 1743, and founded Deacon Snow Church across the bridge, Kerwin had gone with them, though his zeal and attendance soon abated. But however, he cultivated them. Through his zeal and attendance, Kerwin had gone with them, though his zeal and attendance soon abated. Now, however, he cultivated piety once more, as if to dispel the shadow which had thrown him into isolation and it would soon wreck his business fortunes if not sharply checked. Part 2, Chapter 2 The sight of this strange, pallid man, hardly middle-aged in aspect, yet certainly not less than a full century old, seeking at last to emerge from a cloud of fright and detestation, too vague to pin down or analyze, was at once apathetic a dramatic and contemptible thing. Such is the power of wealth and of surface gestures, however, that there 
came indeed a slight abatement in visual aversions displayed towards him, especially after the rapid disappearance of his sailors abruptly ceased. He likewise had begun to practice an extreme care and secrecy in his graveyard expositions, for he was never again caught at such wanderings. Whilst the rumors of uncanny sounds and maneuvers at his Potusset farm diminished in proportion, his rate of food consumption and cattle replacement remained abnormally high, but not until modern times when Charles Ward examined a set of his accounts and invoices in the Shepley Library did it occur to any person, save one embittered youth, perhaps, to make dark comparisons between the larger numbers of slaves he imported until 1766, and the disturbingly small number for whom he could produce bona fide bills of sales, either to slave dealers at the Great Bridge or to the planters in the Narragansett country. Certainly the cunning and ingenuity of this abhorred creature were uncannily profound. Once the necessity for their exercise had become impressed upon him. But of course the effect of all this belated mending was necessarily slight. Kerwin continued to be avoided and distrusted, as indeed the one fact of his continued air of youth at such a great age would be enough to warrant, and he could see that in the end his fortunes would most likely suffer. His elaborate studies and experiments, however, they may be apparently required a heavy income for their maintenance, and since a change of environments would deprive him of trading advantages he had gained, it would not have profited him to begin anew in a different region just then. Judgment demanded that he patch up his relations with the townfolk in Providence, so that his presence might no longer be a signal for hushed conversations, transparent excuses of errands elsewhere, and a general atmosphere of constraint and uneasiness. His clerks being now reduced to shiftless and impecuous residue, whom no one else would employ, were giving him much worry, and he held to a sea captain's inmates only by shrewdness in gaining some ascendancy over them, a mortgage, a promissory note, or a bit of information very pertinent to their welfare. In cases, Dyrus had recorded with some awe, Kerwin shewed almost the power of a wizard in unearthing family secrets for questionable youths. During the final five years of his life, as it seems only Direct talks with the long dead could possibly furnish some of the data which he had so glibly at his tongue's end. About this time, the crafty scholar hit upon a last desperate expedient to regain his footing in the community. Hitherto a complete hermit, he now determined to contract an advantageous marriage, securing as a bride some lady whose unquestioned position could make all the ostracism of his home impossible. It may be that he had deeper reasons for wishing, reasons so far outside of the known cosmic spheres that only papers found a century and a half later after his death caused anyone to suspect them. But of this, nothing certain can ever be learned. 
Naturally, he was aware of the horror and indignation in which any ordinary courtship of his would be received. Hence, he looked about for some likely candidate among whose parents he might exert suitable pressure. Four candidates, he found, were not at all easy to discover, since he had very particular requirements in the way of beauty, accomplishments, and social security. At length, his survey narrowed down to the household of one of his best and oldest sea captains, a widower of high birth and unblemished standing named Duty Tillygast, whose only daughter Eliza seemed dowered with every conceivable advantage save prospects of a heiress. Captain Tillingast was completely under the domination of Kerwin and consented after a terrible interview in his house on Power Lane Hill to sanction the blasphemous alliance. Eliza Tillingast at the time was 18 years of age and had been reared as gently as the reduced circumstances of her father permitted. She had attended Stephen Jackson's school opposite the courthouse parade and had been diligently instructed by her mother before the latter's death of smallpox in 1757 in all the arts and refinements of domestic life. A sampler of hers worked in 1753 at the age of nine may still be found in the rooms of the Rhode Island Historical Society. After her mother's death, she kept the house aided only by one a woman. Her arguments with her fathers concerning the proposed Kerwin marriage must have been painful indeed, but of these we have no record. Certain that her engagement to young Ezra Whedon, second mate of the Crawford Packet Enterprise, was dutifully broken off, and that her union with Joseph Kerwin took on the 7th of March 1763 in the Baptist Church in the presence of one of the most distinguished ensembles which the town could boast, the ceremony being performed by the younger Samuel Windsor. The Gazette mentioned the event very briefly, and in most surviving copies, the item in question seems to be cut or torn out. Ward found a single intact copy after much search in the archives of a private collector of note, observing with amusement the meaningless urbanity of the language. Monday evening last, Mr. Joseph Kerwin of this of this town, merchant, was married to Miss Eliza Tillingast, daughter of Captain Duty Tillingast, a young lady who has real merit, added to a beautiful person's, to grace of the connubial states and perpetuate its felicity. The collection of Durfee Arnold's letters, discovered by Charles Wards shortly after its first reputed madness in the private collection of, of Melville F. Peters Esquire of George Street, and covering this and a somewhat antecedent period, throws vivid light on the outrage done to public sentiment of this ill-sorted match. The social influence of the Tillingas, however, could not be denied, and once more Joseph Kerwin found his house frequented by persons whom he could never otherwise induce to come to cross his thresholds. His acceptance was by no means complete, and his bride was 
socially the sufferer through her force venture. But all events, the wall, but at all events, the wall of utter ostracism was somewhat worn down. In his treatment of his wife, the strange bridegroom astonished both her and the community by displaying a extreme graciousness and consideration. The new house and only court was now wholly free of disturbing manifestations. Although although Corwin was much absent at the Potesset farm, which his wife never visited, only one he seemed more like a normal citizen than any other time of his long years of residence. Only one person remained an open enmity of him, this being the youthful ship's officer, whose engagement to Eliza Tillingas had been so abruptly broken. Ezra Whedon had frankly vowed vengeance, and though of quiet and ordinarily mild disposition, was now gaining a hate-bred dogged purpose, for which boded no good to the usurping husband. On the 7th of May, 1765, Kerwin's only child, Anne, was born, and was christened by Reverend John Graves of King's Church, of which both husband and wife had become communicant shortly after their marriage, in order to compromise between their prospective Congregational and Baptist affiliations. The record of this birth, as well as that of the marriage two years earlier, was stricken from most copies of the church and town annals where it ought to appear. And Charles located them both and Charles located both with the greatest difficulties after his discovery of the widow's name change had apprised him of his own relationship and engendered a feverish interest which culminated in his madness. The birth entry indeed was found very curiously through correspondence with the heirs of the loyalist Dr. Graves who'd taken with him a duplicate set of the records when he left his pastorate at the outbreak of the, Re- at the, outbreak of the revolution. Ward had tried this source because he knew that his great-great-grandmother, Anne Tillinghast Porter, had been an Episcopalian. Shortly after the birth of his daughter, an event he seemed to welcome with a fervor greater out of keeping with his usual coldness, Kerwin resolved to sit for a portrait. This he had painted by the various gifted Scotsman named Cosmos Alexander, then a resident of Newport, and since famous as the early teacher of Gilbert Stuart. The likeness was said to have been rex- executed on a wall panel of the library of the house in only court, but either of the two old diaries mentioning its gave any hint of its ultimate disposition. At this period, the erratic scholar shoot signs of unusual abstraction and spent as much time as he possibly could at the farm on Patusset Road. He seems, it was stated, in a condition of suppressed excitement or suspense, as if expecting some phenomenal thing or on the brink of some strange discovery. Chemistry or alchemy? Chemistry or alchemy would appear to have played a great part, for he took from his house to the farm the greater number of his volumes on that subject. His affection of civic interest did not diminish. He lost no opportunity for helping leaders such as Stephen Hopkins, Joseph Brown, and Benjamin West in their effort to raise the cultural tone of the town. 
which was then far below the level of Newport in his patronage of the liberal art. He had helped Daniel Jenkins. He had helped Daniel uh, Jinks. He had helped Daniel Jinks found his foot his bookshop in 1763 and was thereafter his best customer, extending aid likewise to the struggling Gazette that appeared each Wednesday at the sign of Shakespeare's head. In politics, he ardently supported Governor Hopkins against the Ward Party, whose prime strength was in Newport. In his really eloquent speech at Hacker's Hall in 1765 against the setting off of Northern Providence as a separate town with a pro-Ward vote in the General Assembly, did more than any other thing to wear down the prejudice against him. But Ezra Whedon, who watched him closely, sneered cynically at all this outward activity and freely swore it was no more than a mask for some nameless traffic with the blackest gulfs of Tartarus. The vengeful youth began a systematic study of the man and his doings whenever he was in port, spending hours at night by the wharves with a dory in readiness when he saw the lights and in the Kerwin's warehouses. In following the small boat, he could sometimes still off quietly down the bay. He also kept a close he also kept as close a watch as possible on the Potessa farm and was once severely bitten by dogs the old Indian couple set loose upon him. Part two, chapter three. In 1766 came the final change in Joseph Kerwin. It was very sudden and gained wide notice for the air of suspicion and expectancy dropped like an old cloak, giving instant place to an ill-concealed exaltation of perfect triumph. Kerwin seemed to have difficulty in restraining himself from public harangues on which he found himself or learned or made, but apparently the need of secrecy was greater than the longing to share his rejoicing for no explanation was ever offered to him. It was after this transaction, which appears to have come early in July, that the sinister scholar began to astonish people by his possession of knowledge which only their long-dead ancestors would. But Kerwin's feverish secret activities by no means cease with this change. On the contrary, they tended rather to increase so that more and more of his shipping business was handled by the captains whom he now bound to him by ties of fear as of those of bankruptcy had been. He altogether abandoned the slave trade, alleging that its profits was constantly decreasing. He altogether abandoned the slave trade, alleging that its profits were constantly decreasing. Every possible moment was spent at the Pawtuxet farm, where there are rumors now and then of his presence in places which, though not actually near graveyards, were yet so situated in relation to graveyards that thoughtful people wondered how thorough the old merchant's change in habits really were. Ezra Whedon, through his periods of espionage, were necessarily brief and intermittent on the account of his sea voyaging, had a vindictive presence which the bulk of his practical town folks and farmers lacked. The subject Kerwin's affairs to 
scrutiny such as they had never had before. Many of the old maneuvers of the strange merchant's vessel had been taken for granted on account of the unrest of the times, when every colonist seems determined to resist the provisions of the Sugar Act, which hampered a prominent traffic. Smuggling and evasion were the rule in Narragansett Bay, and nocturnal landing of illicit cargo were continuous commonplaces. But Whedon, night after night, followed the lighters, or small sloops, which he saw sealed off from Kerwin's warehouses at the town street docks. Soon felt assured that it was not merely his majesty's armed ships that the sinister skulker had anxiety to avoid. Prior to the change in 1766, these boats for the most part contained chained slaves who were carried down and across the bay and landed at an obscure point on the shore just north of Paltuxet, being afterwards driven up the bluff and across the country to the Kerwin farm, where they were locked in an enormous stone outbuilding, which had only high narrow slits for windows. After a change, however, the whole program was altered. Importations of slaves ceased at once, and for a time, Kerwin abandoned his midnight sailings. Then, at the spring of 1767, a new policy appeared. Once more, the lighters grew wont to put out from the black, silent docks, and this time, they would go down the bay some distance, perhaps as far as Nanquit Bay, where they would meet and receive cargo from strange ships of considerable size and widely varied appearances. Kerwin's sailors would then deposit his cargo at the usual point on the shore and transport it overland to the farm, locking in the same cryptical stone building which had formerly received the slaves. The cargo consisted almost wholly of boxes and cases, of which large proportions were oblong and heavy and disturbingly suggestive of coffins. Whedon always watched the farms with unremitting assiduity, visiting it each night for long periods and seldom letting a week go by without a sight except when the grounds bore footprint revealing snow. Even then, he would often walk as close as possible in a traveled road or on the ice of the neighboring river to see what tracks other knights might have left. Finding his own vigils interrupted by nautical duties, he hired a tavern companion named Elysiar Smith to continue the survey during his absences, and between the two could have set in motion some extraordinary rumors that they were not to do so only because they knew the effect of publicity would be to warn their quarry and make further progress impossible. Instead, they wished to learn something definite before taking any action. What they did learn must have been startling indeed, and Charles Ward spoke many times to his parents of his regret to Whedon's later burning of his notebooks. All that it could be told of the discoveries is what Elazar Smith jotted down in a none too coherent diary, and what other diarists and letter writers had timidly repeated from the statements 
which they finally made, and according to which the farm was only the outer shell of some vast and revolting menace, of a scope and depth too profound and intangible for more than shadowy comprehension. It is gathered that Whedon and Smith became early convinced that a great series of tunnels and catacombs inhabited by a very sizable staff of persons inside, besides the old Indian and his wife, underlay the farm. It was in January 1770, whilst Sweden and Smith were still debating vainly on what, if anything, think or do about the whole bewildering business. For the incident of Forteleza occurred, expirated by the burning of the revenue sloop Liberty at Newport during the previous summers. The customs fleet under Admiral Wallace had adopted an increasingly vigilant concerning strange vessels. On this occasion, His Majesty's armed schooner, the Sagnet, under Captain Charles Leslie, captured after a short pursuit one early morning the snow Fortaleza of Barcelona, Spain, under Captain Manuel Aruda, bound according to his log from Gran Caro, Egypt, to Providence. And when searched for contraband material, the ship revealed the astonishing fact that its cargo consisted of Egyptian mummies consigned to sailor ABC, who would come to remove his goods in lighter just off of Namquit Point, whose identity Captain Aruda felt himself an honor bound to not reveal. At the Vice Admiralty Court at Newport, at a loss of what to do in view of the non-contraband nature of the cargo, on the one hand, and the unlawful secrecy of entry, on the other hand, compromised on the Collector Robinson recommendation by freeing the ship, forbidding it to port in Rhode Island waters. There were later rumors of having been seen in Boston Harbor, though it never openly entered the port of Boston. The extraordinary incident did not fail of ride remark in Providence, and there not many who doubted the existence of some connection between the cargo of mummies and the sinister Joseph Kerwin. His exotic studies and curious chemical importations being common knowledge and his fondness for graveyards being common suspicion. It did not take much imagination to link him with a freakish importation which could not conceivably been destined for anyone else in town. As if conscious of this belief, Kerwin took care to speak casually on several occasions of the chemical value of balsams bound in mummies, thinking perhaps he might make the affairs seem less unnatural yet stopping just short of admitting of his participation. Whedon and Smith, of course, felt no doubt whatsoever of the significance of the thing and indulged in the wildest theories concerning Kerwin and his monstrous laborers. The following spring, like that of the year before, had heavy rains, and the watchers kept careful track of the riverbank behind Kerwin's farm. Large sections were washed away, and a certain number of bones discovered, but no glimpse 
was afforded of actual subterranean chambers or burrows. Something was rumored, however, at the village of Potasik, about a mile below where the river flows and falls over a rocky terrace to join the placid landlocked cover. There, where quaint old cottages climb the hill from the rustic bridge and fishing smacks lay anchor there on the sleepy docks. A vague report went around of things that were floating down the river and flashing into sights for a minute where they went over the falls. Of course, the Potusset was a long river which winds through many settled regions, abounding its graveyards, and of course, the spring rains have been heavy. But the fishermen about the bridge, not like the wild ways, one of the things stared as it shot down the still water below. For the way, another half cried out, although the condition had greatly departed from what all objects which normally cry out. In haste to the riverbanks behind the farms, where surely enough there remained the evidence of the extensive cave-in, there was, however, no trace of an entrance on that steep bank, for the mini avalanche had left behind a solid wall of mixed earth and shrubbery from aloft. Smith went to the extent of some experimental digging, but he was deterred by the lack of secrets, or perhaps by fear of possible success. It was interesting to speculate on what the persistent and vengeful Whedon would have done if he had been ashore that day. The right persons to tell, he believed, would be Dr. Benjamin West, whose pamphlet on the late transit of Venus proved him a scholar and keen thinker. Reverend James Manning, president of the college, which had just moved up from Warren and was temporarily housed the new King Street. Ex-Governor Stephen Hopkins, who had been a member of the Philosophical Society of Newport and was a man of very broad perceptions. John Carter, the mission of Captain Matheson prospered beyond his highest expectations, where whilst he found one or two of the chosen confidants, which somewhat skeptical of the possible ghastly side of Whedon's tale, there was no one who did not think it necessary to take some coordinated action. Curran, it was clear, formed a vague potential menace to the welfare of the town and colony, and must be eliminated by any cost. Late in December 1770, a group of eminent townsmen met at the home of Stephen Hopkins and debated tentative measures. Whedon's notes, which he had given to Captain Matherson, were carefully read, and he and Smith were summoned to give testimony, and it details. Something very like fear seized the whole assemblage before the meeting was over. Though there ran through that fear a grim determination which Captain Ripple's bluff and resident profanity best expressed. They were not to notify the governor, because more than legal course seemed necessary. Within powers of uncertain extent, apparently at his disposal, 
Curran was not a man who could safely be warned to leave town. Nameless reprisals might ensue. Even if the sinister creature compiled, the removal would be no more than the shifting of unclean Borden to another place. The times were lawless, and men who had flouted the king's revenue forces for years were not the ones to balk at sterner things when impelled. Kerwin must be surprised at his Patuxic farm by a large raiding party of seasoned privateersmen and given one decisive chance to explain himself. If he proved a madman amusing himself with shrieks and imaginary conversations, different voices, he would be properly confined. If something graver appeared, and the underground horrors indeed turned out to be real, he and all with him must die, and must be done quietly. Even the widow and her father must not be told how it came about. While these serious steps were under discussion, there occurred in town an incident so terrible and inexplicable that for a long time, little else was mentioned for miles around. In the middle of the moonlit January night, with heavy snow underfoot, there resounded over the river and up the hill a shocking series of cries, which brought sleepy heads to every windows and people to turn around Waybosset Point, saw a great white thing plunging frantically along the badly cleared space in front of the Turk's head. There was a baying of dogs in the distance, but this subsided as soon as the clamor of the awakened town became audible. Parties of men with lanterns and muskets hurried out to see what was happening, but nothing rewarded their search. The next morning, however, a giant muscular body, stark naked, was found on the jams of ice around the southern piers of the Great Bridge, where the long dock stretched out beside Abbott's distill house, and the identity of this object became a theme for endless speculations and whisperings. It was not much younger than the older folk who whispered, for only the patriarchs did that rigid face with horror bulging eyes strike any chord of memory, they shaking as they did so, exchanged fervid murmurs of wonder and fear, for those stiff, hideous features laid a resemblance so marvelous, be almost an identity. An identity was with a man who had died full fifty years before. Ezra Whedon was present at the findings, remembered the baying of the night before, set out along the Waybosset Street and across the Muddy Dock Bridge. Hence, the sound had come. He had a curious expectancy and was not surprised when reaching the edge of the Settle District, where the street merged into Potusic Road. He came upon some very curious tracks in the snow. The naked giant had been pursued by dogs and many-booted men, and the returning tracks of the hounds and in their masters could be easily traced. They had given up the chase upon too close to the town. Whedon smiled grimly, and as perfunctory details traced the footprints leading back to the source, it was the Potuskit farm of Joseph Kerwin, as he well knew it would be, and he would be given much if the yard had been less confusingly trampled. As it was, he dared not 
seem too interested in full daylight. Dr. Bowen, to whom Whedon went with his report, performed an autopsy on the strange corpse and discovered particularities which baffled him utterly. The digestive tract of the huge man seemed to have never been in use, whilst the whole skin had a coarse, loose-knit texture impossible to account for. Impressed by what the old men whispered of the body's likeness to an old dead blacksmith, Daniel Green, whose great-grandson was a supercargo in Kerwin's employ. Whedon asked the casual questions until he found where Green was buried. That night, a party of ten visited the old north burying ground opposite of Henderson's Lake and opened the grave. They found it vacant, precisely as they expected. Meanwhile, arrangements had been made with the post riders to intercept Joseph Kerwin's mail. Shortly before the incident of the naked body, there were found a letter from one Jedediah Orn of Salem, which made the cooperating citizens think deeply. Parts of it, copied and preserved in private archives of the Smith's family where Charles Ward found it, ran as followed. I delight that you continue in ye getting at old matters in your way, and do not think better was done at Mr. Hutchinson's in Salem Village. Certainly, there was nothing but ye liveliest awfulness in that which it has raised up from what he could gather only a part of. What you sent did not work, whether because of anything missing or because ye words were not right for my speaking or your copying. I alone am at a loss. I have not ye chemical art to follow, Borellis, and own myself confounded by ye seventh book of ye Necronomicon that you recommend. But I would have you observe what was told to us about taking care of whom to call up. For you are sensible what Mr. Mather writ in ye Magnalia, and can judge how truly that horrendous thing is reported. I say to you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down. By the which I mean any that can in turn call up somewhat against you whereby your powerfulest device may not be of use. Ask of the lesser, lest the greater shall not wish to answer, and shall command more than you think. I was frighted when I read of your knowing that Ben Zariatnetmik had in his ebony box, for I was conscious who must have told you. And again I ask that you shall write me as Jedediah, not Simon. In this community a man may not live too long, and you know my plan, by which I came back as my son. I am desirous you will acquaint me with what ye black man learned from Sylvanus Quisidius in ye vault under ye Roman wall, and will oblige for ye lending of ye miss you speak of. Another unsigned letter from Philadelphia provoked equal thought, especially for the following passage. I will observe what you say respecting the sending of accounts only by your vessels, but cannot always be certain when to expect them. In the matter spoke of, I require only one thing, but wish to be sure I apprehend you exactly. You inform me that no part must be missing if the finest effects are to be had, but you cannot 
But you cannot but know how hard it is to be sure. It seems a great hazard and burden to take away the whole box and in town, i.e. St. Peter's, St. Paul's, St. Mary's, or Christ Church. It can be scarce be done at all. But I know what imperfections were in the one I raised up October last, and how many live specimens you were forced to employ before you hit upon the right mode in the year 1766. So will be guided by you in all matters. I am impatient for your brig, and inquire daily at Mr. Biddle's wharf. I say you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down. By which I mean any that can in turn call up somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest device may not be of use. Ask of the lesser, lest the greater shall not wish to answer, and shall command more. A third suspicious letter was in an unknown tongue, even an unknown alphabet, in the Smith's diary found by Dexter Ward, a single oft-repeated combination of characters is clumsily copied. And authorities at Brown University have pronounced the alphabet Amharic or Abyssian, although they do not recognize the word. None of these epistles was ever delivered to Kerwin, though the disappearance of Jebediah Orne from Salem, as recorded shortly after, shown that the Providence men took certain quiet steps. The Pennsylvania Historical Society also had some curious letters received by Dr. Shippen regarding the presence of an unwholesome character in Philadelphia. But more decisive steps were in the air. Slowly and surely, a plan of campaign under the development, which would leave no trace of Joseph Kerwin's nauseous memories. Kerwin, despite all precautions, apparently felt at something that was in the wind. For he was now remarked to wear an unusually worried look. His coach was seen at all hours in the town, and on Paltesic Road, he had dropped little by little the air of forced geniality. The nearest neighbors to his farms, the Finners, one night remarked at a great shaft of light shooting into the sky from some aperture in the roof of that cryptical stone building with the high excessively narrow windows in the events which they quickly communicated with john brown in providence mr brown had become the executive leader of the select group bent on kerwin's extirpation and had formed the finners that some action was about to be taken this he deemed needful of them not witnessing the final raid he explained his course to say that kerwin was known to be a spy of the custom officers in Newport, against whom he handed every provident shipper, merchant, and farmers was openly or, or clandestinely raised. Whether the ruse was wholly believed by the neighbors, who seen so many queer things, is not certain. But at any rate, the Finners were willingly to connect any evil with a man of such queer ways. To them, Mr. Brown had entrusted the duty of watching the Kerwin's farm, regularly reporting every incident which took place there. Chapter 5 The probability that Kerwin was on guard and attempting unusual things, as suggested by the odd shaft of light, participated 
At last, the action so carefully devised by the band of serious citizens. According to the Smith's diary, a company of about 100 men met at 10 p.m. on Friday, April 12, 1771, in the great room of Thurston's Tavern at, at the sign of Golden Lion on, on Way Bosset Point, across the bridge. Of the guiding group of prominent men, in addition to the leader, John Brown, there were President Dr. Bowen with his case of surgical instruments, President Manning without the great periwig, the largest in the colonies, for which he was noted, Governor Hopkins wrapped in his dark cloak and accompanied by his seafaring brother Isaac, who he had initiated in the last moment with the permission of the rest, John Carter, Captain Matthewson, and Captain Whipple, who was to lead the actual raiding party. These chiefs conferred apart in the rear chambers, after which Captain Whipple emerged from the great room and gave the gathered seamen their last oaths and instructions. Alizar Smith was with the leaders as they sat in the rear apartment, awaiting the arrival of Ezra Reedon, whose duty was to keep track of Kerwin and report the departure of his coach for the farm. At about 10.30, a heavy rumble was heard on the Great Bridge, followed by the sound of a coach in the street outside. In that hour, there's no need of waiting for Whedon in order to know that the doomed man had set out for his last night of unhallowed wizardry. A moment later, as the receding coach clattered faintly over the muddy dock bridge, Whedon appeared, and the raiders fell silently into military order in the streets, shouldering the firelocks, fowling pieces, or wailing harpoons which they had with him. Whedon and Smith were with the party, and of the deliberating citizens which were present for active service, Captain Whipple, the leader, Captain Essek Hopkins, John Carter, President Manning, Captain Matthewson, and Dr. Bowen, together with Moses Brown, who had come up on the 11th hour through absence from the preliminary session at the tavern. All of these freemen and their hundred soldiers began the long march without delay, grim and a trifle apprehensive as they left the money dock behind and mounted the gentle rise of Broad Street towards Paltusic Road. Just beyond Elder Snow's church, some of the men turned back and took a parting look at Providence, lying outspread under the early spring stars. Steeples and gables rose dark and shapely, and salt breezes swept up gently from the coves north of the bridge. Vega was climbing above the great hill across the water, whose crest of trees were broken by the roof-like line of the unfinished college edifice. At the foot of that hill, and along the narrow mounting lanes of its side, the old house dreams, old providence, for whose safety and sanity so monstrous and colossal that blasphemy was about to be wiped out. An hour and a quarter later, the raiders arrived, as previously agreed, at the Finner farmhouse, where they heard a final report on their intended victim. He had reached his farm over half an hour, four, and the strange light had soon after 
upward shot once into the sky, but there were no lights in any visible windows. This was always the case of late. Even as this news was given, another glare rose towards the south, and the party realized that they had indeed come close to the scene of awesome and unnatural wonders. Captain Whipple now ordered his force to separate in three separate divisions, one of twenty men under Eliziar Smith to strike across the shore and to guard the landing space against possible reinforcements, for Corwin until summoned by a messenger for desperate service, a second of twenty under Essek Hopkins to steal down the river valley behind Kerwin's farm, demolish with axes or gunpowder the oaken door and the high steep bank, and the third to close in on the house and adjacent buildings themselves. Of this division, one-third was to be led by Captain Matthewson to the cryptical stone edifice with the high windows, another third to follow Captain Whipple himself to the main farmhouse, and the remaining third to reserve a circle around the whole group of buildings till summoned by a final emergency signal. The river party would break down the hillside door at the sound of a single whistle blast, then waiting and capturing anything that might issue from the regions within. At the sound of two whistle blasts, it would advance through the aperture to oppose the enemy or join the rest of the raiding contingent. The party at the stone building would accept these respective symbols in an analogous manner, forcing an entrance at first, and at the second descending whatever passage into the ground that might be discovered or joining the general or focal warfare expected to take place within the caverns. A third or emergency signal of three blasts would summon the immediate reserve from its general guard duty. The twenty men divided equally, entering the unknown depths through the farmhouse and stone building. Captain Whipple's belief in the existence of catacombs was absolute, and he took no alternative and consideration when making his plan. He had with him a whistle of great power and swillness, and did not fear any upsetting or mistaking of signals. But the final reserve of the landing, of course, it was nearly out of Russell's range, hence would require a special messenger if needed for help. Moses Brown and John Carter went with Captain Hopkins to the riverbank while President Manning was detailed with Captain Matthewson to the stone building. Dr. Bowen with Ezra Whedon remained in Captain Whipple's party, which was to storm the farmhouse itself. The attack was to begin as soon as a messenger from Captain Hopkins had joined Captain Whipple to notify him of the river party's readiness. The leader would deliver the loud whistle and the various advance parties would commence their simultaneous attack on three points. Shortly before 1 a.m., the three divisions left the Fenner farmhouse, one to guard the landing, another to seek River Valley in the hillside door, and the third to subdivide and attend to the actual buildings of the Kerwin farm. Elysia R. Smith, who accompanied the shore guarding party, records in his diary an uneventful march 
and a long wait on the bluff by the bay, broken once by what seemed to be the distant sound of the whistle and again by particular muffled lending of roaring and crying and a powdered blast which seemed to have come from the same direction. Later, on one man thought, he caught some distant gunshot and still later Smith himself felt the throb of the titanic and thunderous words resounding in upper wind. It was just before dawn that a single haggard messenger with wild eyes and hideous unknown odor about his clothes appeared and told the detachment to disperse quietly to their homes and never think or speak about the night's doing, or of him who had been Joseph Kerwin. Something about the bearing of the messenger carried a conviction which his mere words could never convey. For though he was a seaman, well known by many of them, there was something obscurely lost or gained in his soul which set him evermore apart. It was the same later on when they met another odd companion who had gone into the zone of the horror. Most of them had lost or gained something imponderable and indescribable. They had seen or heard something which was not for human creatures and could not forget. From them, they were never gossip, for to even the commonest of mortal instincts were terrible boundaries. And from that single messenger, that party at the shore caught a nameless awe, which almost sealed their own lips. Very few are rumored which ever came from them. And Elazar Smith's diary is the only written record that survived from the whole expedition, who set forth from the sign of the golden lion under the stars. Charles Ward, however, discovered another vague sidelight in some finnier correspondence which he found in New London, where he knew another branch of the family had lived. It seemed that the Finners, from whose house of the doomed farm was distantly visible, had watched the departing columns of raiders, and had heard very clearly the angry barking of the Kerwin dogs, followed by the first, the shrill blasts, which precipitated the attack. This blast had been followed by repetition of great shafts of light from the stone building, and another moment, after a quick sounding of second signal, ordering a general invasion, there had come a sudden prattle of musketry, followed by a horrible warring cry, which the correspondent Luke Fender had represented in his epistle by the characters Wah! Wah! This cry, however, possessed the quality of which no mere writing could convey, and the correspondent mentions that his mother fainted completely at the sound, and it was later repeated less loudly, but further and more muffled. Evidence of gunfire ensued. Together with a loud explosion of powder from directions of the river, about an hour afterwards all the dogs began to bark frightfully, and there were vague ground rumblings so marked that the candlesticks tottered on the piece. A later smell of sulfur was noted, and Luke Finnerer's father declared that he heard a third emergency whistle. Though the others failed to detect it, muffled musketry sounded again, followed by a deep scream, less piercing, but even more horrible than those which had preceded it. A kind of throaty, nastily plastic cough or gurgle, whose quality as a scream must have come more from continuity and psychological import 
than from its actual acoustic value. Then the flaming thing bursts in sight at the point where Kerwin's farm are to lie, and the human cries of desperate and frightened men were heard. Muskets flashed and cracked, and the flaming thing fell onto the ground. A second flaming thing appeared, and a shriek of human origin was plainly distinguished. Finnerer wrote that he could gather a few words belched in frenzy. Almighty, protect thy lamb. And then there were more shots, and a second flaming thing fell. And after that came silence for about three quarters of an hour. And at the end of which time, little Arthur Finnerer, Luke's brother, exclaimed that he saw a red fog going up to the stars from the accursed farm in the distance. No one but the child could testify to this. But Luke admits the significant coincidence implied by the panic of the almost convulsion fright at which the same moment arched the backs and stiffened the fur of three cats within the room. Five minutes later, a chill wind blew up and the wind became suffused with such an intolerable stench that almost the that only the strongest freshness of the sea could have prevented it from being noticed by the shore party, or any wakeful souls in Paltusket village. Stench was nothing which any of the Finnerers had ever encountered before, and produced a kind of clutching amorphous fear beyond that of the tomb or the charnel house. Close upon it came the awful voice which no hapless hearer could ever be able to forget. It thundered out of the sky like a doom, and the windows rattled as it echoed. It was deep and musical, powerful as a bass organ, but as evil as forbidden books of the Arabs. What it said no man could tell, for it spoke an unknown tongue. But this is the writing Luke Finnerer set down to portray the demonic intonations. Tease me, Jeshet, Bon Desifé. Not until the year 1919 did any soul like this crude transcript with anything else immortal knowledge. But Charles Ward paled as he recognized what Mirandola had denounced in shudders as ultimate horror among black magics incantations. As unmistakably human shout or deep chorus scream seemed to have answered this malignant wonder from the Curran farm, after which the unknown stench grew complex and added an odor equally intolerable. A wailing distantly different from the screams now burst out and was protracted ungenantly in rising and falling paroxysms. At times it became almost articulate. Though no auditor could trace any definite words, at one point it seemed to verge toward the confines of diabolical and hysterical laughter. Then a yell uttered ultimate fright and stark badness wrenched from scores of human throats. A yell that became strong and clear despite the depths from which it must have burst and after which darkness and silence ruled all things. Spirals of acrid smoke ascended to blood out the stars, and no flames appeared. No buildings were observed to be gone, or injured on the following day. Towards dawn, two frightened messengers, with monstrous and implacable odors saturating their clothes, knocked at the funeral door and requested a keg of rum, which they paid for very well indeed. 
One of them told the family that the affair of Joseph Kerwin was over, and that the events of the night was not to be mentioned again. Arrogant at that order seemed. The aspect of him who gave it took away all resentment and lent it to a fearsome authority, so that only the fervent letter of Luke Federer, who urged his Connecticut relative to destroy, remained to tell what was seen and heard. The non-compliance of this relative, whereby the letter was saved after all, was alone kept the matter from fearful oblivion. Charles Ward had one detail to add as a result of a long canvas of potuscat for ancestral traditions. Old Charles Slocum of the village said there was known to his grandfather a queer rumor concerning a charred distorted body found in the fields a week after the death of Joseph Kerwin was announced. What kept the talk alive was the notion that this body, as far as it could be seen, in its burnt and twisted condition was neither human or wholly allied to any animal which Autuscan folk have ever seen or read about. Chapter 6 Not one man who participated in that terrible raid could ever be as induced to say a word concerning it. And every fragment of the vague data which survived comes from outside of the final fighting party. There is something frightful in the care which these actual raiders destroyed each scrap that bored the least allusion to the manor. Eight soldiers had been killed, but although their bodies were not produced to their families, were satisfied with the statement of the clash with custom officers had occurred. The same statement had also covered the numerous cases of all wounds, all of which were extensively bandaged and treated only by Dr. Jazbez Bowen, who had accompanied the party. Hardest to explain yet was a nameless odor clinging to all the raiders, a thing which was discussed for weeks. Of the citizen leaders, Captain Whipple and Moses Brown were the most severely hurt, and letters of their wives testified the bewilderment which their reticence and close guarding of their bandages produced. Psychologically, every participant was aged, sobered, and shaken. It is fortunate that there are all strong men of action and simple, orthodox religionists. For those with more subtle introspectiveness and mental complexity, they would have fared ill indeed. President Manning was the most disturbed, but even he outgrew the darkest shadow and smothered the memories in prayer. Every man of those leaders had a stirring part to play in later years, and it is perhaps fortunate that it is so. Little more than a twelve month after Captain Whiffle led the mob who burnt the revenue ship Gatsby, and in this bold act we trace one in the blotting out of the unwholesome things. There was delivered to the widow of Joseph Kerwin a sealed leaden coffin of curious design, obviously found ready on the spot when needed, in which she was told her husband's bodies lay. He had, it explained, been killed in a customs battle which was not polite to give details. More than this, no tongue ever uttered of Joseph Kerwin's end, and Charles Ward only had a single hint wherewith to construct a theory. This hint was the merest thread, a shaky underscoring of a passage in Jedediah Orne's confiscated letter to Kerwin. It was partially copied in Ezra Whedon's handwriting. The copy was found in the possession of Smith's descendants, 
and we were left to decide whether Whedon gave it to his companion after the end as a mute clue to the abnormality which had occurred, or whether is as more probable Smith had it done before and added the underscoring himself from which he managed to extract from his friend by a shrewd guessing and adroit cross-questioning. The underlined passage is merely this. I say to you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down. By the which I mean any that can in turn call up somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest devices may not be of use. Ask of the lesser, lest the greater shall not wish to answer, and shall command more than you. In the light of this passage and reflecting on what last unmentionable allies a beaten man might try to summon his direst extremity, Dexter Ward may well had wondered whether any citizen of Providence killed Joseph Kerwin. The deliberate effacement of every memory of the dead man from Providence life and annals was vastly aided by the influence of the raiding leaders. They had not at first meant to be so thorough, and had allowed the widow and her father and child to remain in ignorance of the true conditions. But Captain Tillingast was an astute man, and soon uncovered enough rumors to wet his horror and caused him to demand that his daughter and granddaughter change their name, and burn the library and all remaining papers, and chisel the inscription from which the slate's slab above Joseph Kerwin's grave. He knew Captain Whipple well, and probably extracted more hints from the buff mariner than anyone else ever gained, respecting the end of the accursed sorcerer. From that time on the obliteration of Kerwin's memory had become increasingly rigid, extending at last by common consent, even to the town records and files of the Gazette. It could be compared in spirit only to the hush that lay on Oscar Wilde's name for a decade after his disgrace, and extending only to the fate of that sinful king of Runazar and Lord Dunsany's tale where the gods decided must not only cease to be, but cease to ever have been. Miss Tillingas, as a widow, became known after 1772, sold the house in only court, and resided with her father in Powers Lane until after her death in 1817. The farm at Paltusket, shunned by every living soul, remained to molder through the years and seemed to decay with an unaccountable rapidity. By 1780, only the stone and brickwork were standing, and by 1800, even these had fallen to shapeless heaps. None ventured to pierce the tangled shrubbery on the river bank behind which the river door may have lain, nor had any tried to frame a definite image of those scenes amidst which Joseph Kerwin departed from horrors he had wrought. Only the robust old Captain Whipple has heard by alert listeners to mumble once in a while to himself pox on that he had no business to laugh while he screamed twas it though the damned had it something up his sleeve for half a crown i'd burn his house